0: Hello and welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. Today's focus is the challenges around funding and implementation of robust national and international research agendas for hemophilia. We have devoted this entire episode to conversations with research leaders to learn more about the current state of hemophilia research, the barriers and opportunities we're facing today and what the future of hemophilia research might look like. We'll dive in right after this.
1: Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. The
0: problem is both fundamental and complex. Fundamentally, without good research, advances in hemophilia, indeed in any medical field, are impossible. At the same time, research is a complex affair. It's not always clear how best to fund, support, and coordinate the work of scientists and academics who are often spread across multiple institutions and countries. And unless addressed urgently, Solving these challenges of getting the right hemophilia researchers funded and coordinated in their work, it will ultimately be patients who pay the price. In today's episode, we tackle these issues head-on in a series of interviews with leading researchers who shed light on how to support, fund, and coordinate hemophilia research. We start with the story of Dr. Flora Pevati, a professor of internal medicine and director of the Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center in Milan. She describes what so many hemophilia researchers experience, the long hours and hard work, often collaborating internationally, that eventually pays off.
2: One of the main moments of my life was when I was just coming back from the United States, and they decided to construct a molecular lab, which can take care of the molecular characterization of the rare disorders. I was working seven days every day, and like scientists, hardest research that I did because so many countries were involved, so many scientists, and we work very, very much.
0: Today, Dr. Pevati is the president of the ISTH, the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Thinking back to those earlier days in her career, she remembers the great success.
2: The team was there and the lab started to work and the first recombinant products we have produced that was really a big emotion of my life and when the new england journal of medicine accepted that paper i was extremely happy to see that a good research could end up to be published
0: dr pevati's story is the one that we want to hear the work of a dedicated hemophilia researcher collaborating with colleagues around the world leading to advances in science, publications in prestigious medical journals, and ultimately improvement in care for patients. But scholars like Dr. Pevati are facing ever greater challenges, and her story of success is becoming more difficult to replicate. And as other hemophilia researchers note, the result is delayed care for hemophilia patients.
3: So the way I look at it is people are waiting. We can't wait any longer to get research funded because it's urgent.
0: This is Dr. Len Valentino. He has more than 35 years of experience in the hemophilia community and led a hemophilia treatment center for 25 years at Rush University Medical, where he was also a professor of pediatrics, internal medicine, biochemistry, and molecular biology. In 2013, he left academic medicine to join industry and reach populations around the world before returning to patients and joining the National Hemophilia Foundation in 2020 as its CEO.
3: It's urgent for people who are living with hemophilia. They've been waiting a long time to get their questions answered. And we have an obligation to them to answer these questions in a timely fashion and do the best job that we can. Historically, the hemophilia community of researchers has been a very active one. There's been quite a bit of research that's taken place within our hemophilia treatment centers, academic institutions, the universities, and hospitals.
0: But what if our academic and clinical institutions, universities, and hospitals just aren't set up the right way to incentivize this kind of research? According to Dr. Jordan Shavit, professor of pediatrics and human genetics at the University of Michigan, we're facing a crisis. People
4: who are getting into research, they're ending up with clinical loads that prevent them from doing that successfully. They have clinical loads because they have to maintain their salary through either research grant dollars. It just gets harder and harder to maintain that clinical program. It becomes a death spiral. If you don't have enough money from grants, they give you more
0: clinical time. And then that takes away from your research time. At some level, it just all sounds so bleak. But in fact, there are bright spots, examples of success that show what's possible when the pieces eventually do come together.
5: We're treating 24,000 patients in 74 countries with 250 to 300 million IUs of product a year. It goes without saying that, that this program is saving lives every day.
0: That's Dr. Glenn Pierce, Vice President of Medical for the World Federation of Hemophilia talking about their humanitarian aid program. Trained as a physician scientist at Case Western Reserve and Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, Dr. Pierce saw a desperate need for better hemophilia support in the developing world.
5: In some ways, it's such a huge, insurmountable problem that that it makes you want to just throw your arms up and say, I don't know what we can do about this. When I was at Biogen developing the extended half-life products, I worked with our management team. And they... I brought them all to the Paris FH Congress, and they saw what I saw 15, 20 years previously. Life is not particularly good around the world. And they made a commitment that we worked on together to donate a billion units of Half-Life, Factor 8 and Factor 9 to the developing world, and they chose the WFH to do that.
0: The WFH Humanitarian Aid Program aims to provide consistent and sustainable care for people living with hemophilia in the developing world, an achievement that is possible, according to Dr. Pierce, because so many different groups have been able to coordinate and collaborate. Coming up
5: with integrated long-term plans for this is going to be the most important thing, and it takes all the stakeholders working together to be able to do this.
0: And several organizations have played leading roles in doing just that by developing medical education, clinical practice guidelines, and funding research in hemophilia. Here again is Dr. Len Valentino and Michelle Whitkop, nurse and nurse practitioner and former vice president of research strategy at the National Hemophilia Foundation. Both Len and Michelle describe here how NHF has been a leader in stimulating research across the hemophilia community as well as in supporting clinical research, too.
3: The funding has really focused on patient-driven research for as long as the organization has been around, which is now almost 75 years. Historically, the hemophilia community of researchers has been a very active one. There's been quite a bit of research that's taken place within our hemophilia treatment centers, also within academic institutions, the universities and hospitals. We try to go to the corners of the nation,
6: very rural areas, geographically diverse areas, geographically diverse communities. We try to reach out to everybody possible and get a good representation of the community. We're also looking at how we can make clinical trials who are available to the community. We're listing them on our website, giving a direct link. And eventually we're hoping that we'll have some type of matching service that somebody can sign up for. They say, I want to look for these type of trials and we'll be able to say, this is available and this is how you reach out to the principal investigator. So that it's not quite as hard and the barriers aren't as steep where the person was looking to
0: engage. But the work hasn't been easy, and even with the resources of a large national organization, Doctors Valentino and Whitkop have faced some real challenges.
3: Although it's been an extremely active research environment, it all hasn't always been as, say, productive as it could be, by people working in collaboration and working together on those research questions. One of the things that has struck me over you know, 30 years of being in the field and doing this is how there is lack of coordination and and a lack of effort to really bring people together to work in unison on the most important questions. The community has been siloed in many ways working in these research areas, striving to be able to do research, but maybe weren't able to get over the hump and really be able to create the momentum that was necessary to have a viable research project that was fundable. Being a patient-driven, patient-focused research agenda was what I was hoping to be able to do. That requires a lot of collaboration and communication. So we were able to bring in a number of patients, people who live with hemophilia, men, women, and caregivers, of course, of people who live with hemophilia. We sought to bring these diverse people together to put all of their expertise together and help them focus on the NHF team, really spearheaded by Michelle and others have been instrumental in bringing physicians and clinician researchers together with nurses and nurse researchers, physiotherapists and social workers.
6: Another ways we want to move forward with is research ambassadors. We want to train people on what research means and then send them out to their communities through the chapters and the communities so that they can in turn reach out to their communities, their peers, and train them, be the navigators for them. It's a grassroots effort, but eventually that'll bring more people into the research arena and they'll feel less intimidated by being able to talk to a researcher like Dr. Valentino and being able to say, I don't agree with that.
3: Having people with hemophilia express what their challenges are, what their gaps in care are, what their biggest concerns are for the future was key in understanding where research really needed to go understanding stakeholders' perceptions, their gaps in care, and really what they wanted to see in the future for research was really key in developing any research agenda. Now the challenge is taking those research questions and really putting behind them. What was the most important to people who live with hemophilia? How are we going to address these questions? What's the research that can be done to really address these and come up with some solutions and improve the life of people who live with hemophilia. The biggest challenge in any endeavor like this is keeping the momentum going, keeping people cohesive and collaborating together, communicating, but even the bigger challenge is funding and getting the resources to be able to create the opportunities to do the research that's so vitally necessary.
0: Coming from the National Hemophilia Foundation, Doctors Valentino and Witkop give us an understanding of the challenges of coordinating hemophilia research from a perspective within the hemophilia community. But much funding comes from external sources, foremost among them the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. Here is Dr. Keith Hoots.
7: I'm Keith Hoots. I'm recently retired from the National Institutes of Health. As the director of the Division of Blood Diseases and Resources, at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Prior to that, I was in academia for 28 and a half years at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. There I ran a hemophilia treatment center.
0: Dr. Hoots has tons of experience that he brings to the table for today's conversation on the barriers to research. And we'll hear from him right after this quick break.
1: Haemophilia A and B are both bleeding disorders, however, they have their own unique pathologies and clinical features which makes them inherently different. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to the distinct behavior of factor IX, multiple pharmacokinetic or PK parameters should be considered when assessing the treatment and management of Haemophilia B. So, what does this mean for people with hemophilia? Visit the bigger picture in hemeb.com to see how a broader view of PK may influence hemophilia B treatment. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. We pick up with
0: Dr. Keith Hoots.
7: The mandate at National Institutes of Health I and mean, cascades all the way down to the categorical institutes, which National Heart, Lung, and Blood is the third largest, is to support across the entire spectrum of research, investigations to improve the health of American society as a primary um, object of that, but more broadly globally as well. We had emphases at, at the bench, at basic science, in translation, and in clinical trials. We also were the primary supporter of transfusion medicine, which has a natural kind of historical relationship to hemophilia and hemostasis.
0: Dr. Hoots describes the competitive systems used by the NIH to determine what and how research is funded.
7: The way things worked was two major avenues for research. The first is investigator-initiated which is where the largest amount of money that we were allocated for goes. It is where scientists from the US and collaborators from around the world submit ideas into a competitive process to get funded. And that applies certainly to hemophilia and to von Willebrand's and all the other inherited bleeding disorders. So that was a major avenue and it could be at understanding the basic biology or it could be how do you translate that basic biology into new drugs or new therapies or it could be trying those new therapies in a randomized clinical trial or clinical study so we did all of those then the other avenue where we had more hands-on influence were what is known as initiative development that is the development of ideas that we within our division identified as needs. We could compete with our colleagues in heart, lung, and other parts of the Institute for resources to try to get those funded as a potential allocation, potential grant. Those were the creative side of, of what we did, particularly in the blood division. We did several of those in the context of hemophilia, Von Willebrand disease, and others. After we had successfully competed to get those things funded, we would put out the formal initiative where we'd invite investigators from across the U.S. and colleagues around the world to apply for those funds that were designated in narrow scientific emphases. Again, it could be basic, clinical, or translational in between.
0: As Dr. Hoots highlights, the funding process is competitive, and not just for hemophilia researchers, but among funding agencies who are also vying for research dollars. This is something of a challenge when the disease in question affects relatively few people.
7: One has, as kind of a mandate when you're trying to cover non-malignant hematology, is that so much of that landscape is defined, as you said, by rare diseases. We only really had other than transfusion, which is not a disease, it's a technique, but other than transfusion, we really only had one highly prevalent disease that we covered in non-malignant hematology where the incidence was up to a million a year in the United States, and that's deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. All the others were less prevalent than that. Contrast that with cancer, which is not a disease, but a series of diseases, or cardiovascular disease and coronary myocardial infarction, et cetera, where there are hundreds of thousands of patients every, every month, not every day, I mean, but every month. And so you see the challenge that we have, particularly on the clinical side, it probably has less impact at the bench, but at the, on the clinical side, in order to definitively ascertain a therapy as being superior to a alternative therapy, one needs to do a randomized clinical trial. And doing randomized clinical trial when the prevalence of the disease is small is a real challenge. Fortunately, one of the things that happened during my tenure was, was a strong evolution of expertise, at how to do trials in rarer diseases. So that allowed us to u- utilize those um, new expanded techniques to get to answers
0: in addition to spurring advances in knowledge the research funded by the nih also supports the research workforce including new scientific investigators
7: we were a major economic support for new investigators in the relevant fields in our institutes. And for us, obviously, that was in non-malignant hematology and certainly included hemostasis and thrombosis. Particularly through the trainee awards, we were very aggressive in funding next-generation investigators. We had probably the highest percentage of funded grants in that area across the entire NIH by a good deal. Certainly, hemostasis and thrombosis benefited from that. We argued a lot of times and we gave up on other things in order to maintain that level of commitment to the next generation of physician scientists and PhD scientists in the relevant fields. We were fortunate because of the legacy that our mentors left, that uh, the people who came in the next generation were in place enough to really recruit promising, bright, young scientists and physician scientists and they were in to benefit from that kind of funding
0: so what about those next gen researchers how does the state of hemophilia research look from their point of view it used
4: to be that a lot of biomedical research was done by physicians and so i think they were onto something that they didn't even really know dr jordan chavit weighs in and we had a friend who was a professor at the university of illinois in chicago and she got me a job In a lab of one of her colleagues and I worked there for the summer and I just had a great time. I had so much fun. They treated me so nicely and I learned so much. And I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, but then I went back to that same department, worked there again, and I really learned what research was about because it took me a little while before I understood it. it was asking questions that you didn't know the answers to. I remember having a conversation in the lab one day with a postdoctoral fellow and she was saying it could be this, it could be that, you know, the answer to this question. I said, what's the answer? And she said, we don't know. That's why we do the research. So I continued working in a number of labs over my undergraduate studies. And finally, I found out about MD-PhD programs to combine the two. What I do in the clinic informs what I do in the lab. It actually helps me to answer the questions and do the studies I do in the lab. And then from there, you know, things have just gone very well with research, and I've been involved in different organizations like HTRS. I'm currently the vice president slash president-elect, and
0: in about a year and a half, I'll be the president. Despite the value of this dual clinician and researcher perspective, Dr. Shavit has seen a big shift in the way research is done. physician scientists did most of the biomedical research, uh,
4: you know, several decades ago, and it's really flipped to being mostly PhDs doing biomedical research. And I think that's a big loss. It, it, you know, I, There was somebody when I was in the MD-PhD program who came and said, there's just something different about having both of those pieces of information in one brain that is something that's unique. You, can, it, It's not always just about somebody who can do research and somebody who can take care of patients and the two of them meeting together and discussing it. That works for a lot of things, but for other things it really, It's important to have that all in one brain to, to make certain kinds of discoveries. So the physician scientist is really important from that perspective.
0: Of course, an even greater challenge for hemophilia researchers, medical doctors, PhDs, or otherwise, remains funding.
4: It's not, of course, all about money. Money
0: doesn't solve all problems. But to do research, you need to have money. We heard Dr. Keith Hoots describe a bit of the process that NIH uses to help facilitate research. Another source of research funding has been the HTRS, which stands for the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Research Society.
4: I'm currently on the HTRS board, the vice president slash president-elect. In about a year and a half, I'll be the president. HTRS has been really successful at fundraising and also bringing people together. It's developed a number of networks, the connector network for fellows, and there's a presence for HTRS at major meetings bringing people together and having them being able to network. When you're a part of that, that helps you to learn about other things that are going on and shuttle you into different kinds of research enterprises
0: that are available. But for new researchers, as Dr. Shavit explains, getting into those new research enterprises can be challenging. As, a, as somebody runs a research lab, I'm
4: constantly thinking about how we're gonna fund our research. That's one of the historical barriers. And the other one, the other key one is people, right? People, even more important than money, people to do the research. We've had a flip over the years where being a physician was often hand-in-hand with being a researcher, often a lab researcher. And we've seen a flip where it's more and more PhDs who are doing that role and less and less MDs. And it's certainly not that the PhDs are taking it away from the MDs. As medical education gets more expensive, straight MDs are taking a lot of loans and have a lot of debt. Going and working in a lab for low wages after medical school is not seen as very attractive when the future is that you're going to be fighting for funding and there's a good portion of people who aren't going to be successful at that. well, That's a big scare for medical students and physicians who are trying to get into that. People who would have stayed in that laboratory route are going into either no research or clinical research. And certainly it's important, but even people who are getting into clinical research, they're ending up with clinical loads that prevent them from doing that successfully. They have clinical loads because they have to maintain their salary through either research grant dollars, and if they can't do that, it has to be through clinical work. And so over time, it just gets harder and harder to maintain that clinical program. It becomes a death spiral. If you don't have enough money from grants, they give you more clinical time. That takes away from your research time. So when you don't have those people going into it, it's hard to find
0: people to carry out the research, even if we do have the funding it hasn't always been quite so difficult. Dr. Pevati, who we heard from at the beginning of the episode, recalls successes earlier in her research career.
2: There were several moments in my life because I had the opportunity to work at the international level in different regions of the world. And one of the main moments of my life was when I was just coming back from the United States and decided to construct a lab, a molecular lab, which can take care of the molecular characterization of the rare disorders. And I was working seven days every day and like scientists, like a constructor and everything. And when the team was there and the lab started to work and the first recombinant products we have produced, that was really a, big emotion of my life I would say and the second I have to share it with you it was when we had a publication of the New England Journal of Medicine because that was done uh, one of the hardest <laughs> research that I did because so many countries were involved so many scientists and we work in the last two years very very much and when New England Journal accepted that paper I was extremely happy to see that a good research could end up to be published.
0: Like Dr. Shavit, Dr. Pevati sees getting new researchers involved as a big key to success.
2: And more and more is difficult to find the people that are interested in hemostasis in terms of bleeding. We have really few figures, young few figures that are working in the field of hemophilia and um, we need to find a way for the attraction of these people for both clinical and also research and to make sure in the future we have enough people who are taking care of this type of disorders i'm teaching at the university of milan as an internist and i have the possibility to see a large number of the young people who are coming Harvey and I'm asking them, if you're interested in hemostasis, you can come to the hemostasis internist. And what I'm doing now, which is really exciting, so my center was used to have only hematologists. And now, in my center, if you come, there are a large number of the young internists. Some of them are working on the arterial thrombosis in hemophilic patients because the hemophilia. They are living like exactly the general population. So they have the myocardial infarction, they have the stroke. There are people who are taking care of the liver of these patients because they have the hepatological type of alteration to gene therapy. So different complication of hemophilia could be cured by internists and involving more and more younger people who are interested in the research area. So I think we need we need to expand our field a little bit, involving the younger people. That's the most difficult part, how to stimulate, and especially after COVID, which really changed a lot. You have to make the stimulation in the young people. Make them believe in what they are doing and trying to give them the hope. and on their future and trying to help them and construct for them a brilliant future. And this is not an easy job. And really this enthusiasm needs the work of everyone in the organization.
0: For Dr. Pevati, there are important connections between the rare disorder nature of hemophilia research, the need for new researchers to enter the field, and collaboration at a global level
2: one of the biggest challenge to work in a field of hemophilia which is a rare disorder is the size of the population you have to come up with very strong evidence-based conclusion and that that sometimes is very much frustration because you want to come up with some result which is really convincing with a high recommendation but the numbers, they are not allowing you. And particularly, they are not allowing you if you are working in a single center and you need to have the national databases, international databases. That's one of the points which we have to consider. The rare disorder is a kind of difficult area and we need international collaboration. We need to increase the powers of our study.
0: Nonetheless, Dr. Pevati sees a bright future as hemophilia gains a greater profile among the population at large.
2: Hemophilia is becoming a, one of the diseases that the general population are facing up, as I told you before, the hypertension, the complication of the thrombosis, how to manage it, is changing the type of the study that we have to do. If all these novel products that are supposed to get Into the market in the next two three years are working without creating a big damage then we are really solving most of the problems at least in the developed world the biggest challenge here is we have to remember 80 percent of the world doesn't have the facility and is not treated and to me as a scientist and physician i feel comfortable if what we have produced in somehow have been transmitted also to the rest of the world,
0: And therein lies what might be the biggest challenge of all in hemophilia research. Notwithstanding the efforts leading to scientific discoveries and the development of new products, how do we get the advances that we have already made to the rest of the world, notably the developing world? For this, we turn to an expert in global hemophilia health, Dr. Glenn Pierce, one more time, right after one more break.
1: Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit the bigger picture in to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for USHCPs only.
0: Welcome back. As mentioned earlier, Glenn is currently the VP of Medical for the World Federation of Hemophilia, and he originally trained at Case Western Reserve in St. Louis, Missouri. In fact, that is when his interest in research specifically started.
5: My original background was really wanting to become a physician, and it's because I was born with severe hemophilia A, spent much of my childhood in the hospitals, and doctors became my role models, and I figured if you can't beat them, join them. And it was important to me to learn as much as I could about my disease to try to gain some measure of control, because this was a period in which there was no treatment. I went through medical school, did a PhD in immunology, and got involved in some biotechnology research for a period of time. My night job, which sometimes was my day job, was as a volunteer with the National Hemophilia Foundation, where I was the president on three occasions. And that really became my passion. And by 2002, uh, I decided to do a career switch and get involved in hemophilia research.
0: Like many of his colleagues, Dr. Pierce sees a big difference between the developed and developing world in terms of access to treatment for hemophilia.
5: We live in a little bubble here in the United States where everything is great. We have access to any treatment you can imagine, for the most part. And although we have a very disjointed and discombobulated insurance system, inevitably, people wind up getting the kind of therapy that they need for the treatment of hemophilia. And they get state-of-the-art therapies. We have access to extended half-life products. We have access to amicizumab. We are very fortunate. But Dealing with hemophilia is very much a matter of where you were born, and the vast majority of the world, 85% of the world, does not have access to these therapies. You just have to look around and see the condition that people are in, and that condition is reminiscent of the way life was like for us in the United States 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Um And the question then is, what can be done about that? In some ways, it's such a huge, insurmountable problem that it makes you wanna just throw your arms up and say, I don't know what we can do about this.
0: But despite the size of the problem of improving hemophilia care in the developing world, Dr. Pierce and his colleagues at the WFH humanitarian aid program have made some significant strides forward.
5: The humanitarian aid program has evolved so that now six, seven years later, We're treating 24,000 patients in 74 countries with 250 to 300 million IUs of product a year, plus emicizumab. It goes without saying that that this program is saving lives every day. It has uh, saved patients who've had intracranial hemorrhages, which have a high mortality rate if you don't have product, and other major kinds of bleeds, intraabdominal bleeds, psoas bleeds that can cause uh, so much damage uh, as a result of all that blood that forms in those closed spaces. And so the, this program really is remarkable. And it's getting to maybe 30% of the patients who need it in the developing world. And that's really remarkable.
0: So what about the future of these programs? How can the gains made by Dr. Pierce and his colleagues through the WFH's humanitarian aid program be sustained?
5: Establishing an infrastructure is important. And in many ways, as you go into a hemophilia treatment center that hasn't run clinical trials before with industry, with pharmaceuticals. It's analogous to a person fresh out of college looking for their first job. Somebody needs to give them a break and, and somebody needs to just give them that first job. And then once that happens, everything snowballs
0: and continues on a good course after that. And perhaps there, Glenn gives us at least part of the answer to meeting the challenge of hemophilia research build on a sort of snowball effect. Start by empowering the right people, the right research, follow up by supporting them with the right infrastructure, and follow through to the finish line by providing patients with the results.
5: Establishing an infrastructure is important, but nonetheless, the biggest challenge is training people to appreciate the need for research and the need for data collection. In the long view really is training and advocacy.
0: So let's recap. In this episode, we talked about the current state of hemophilia research, the barriers and opportunities we're facing, and what the future of hemophilia research might look like. From Drs. Valentino and Wickop at the National Hemophilia Foundation in the United States, we heard how innovative approaches like using community research ambassadors can integrate patient voices into the research process, allowing for people with hemophilia to express their challenges and concerns so that, eventually, such issues can be addressed by researchers. Getting the right voices heard is critical, as we learned from Dr. Hoots. As a relatively small disease, hemophilia competes for funding from agencies like the National Institutes of Health with conditions that, because they affect a much wider population, they may have a louder voice when it comes to research dollars. We also talked to Dr. Flora Pevati in Milan, Italy, and Dr. Jordan Shavit in Michigan, the United States, both of whom spoke passionately about the need to understand the pressures facing younger researchers and why it is so important for the future of hemophilia research that a new generation of scholars be ready to join the field. And finally, as Dr. Glenn Pierce illustrated, hemophilia research is more than just new advances in treatment. As important as that is, It also involves ensuring that these treatments get to the 75 to 80% of the world's population that currently does not have regular sustainable access to them. The innovative approaches discussed by all of our guests today demonstrate that there is hope for the future of hemophilia research by integrating patient voices, supporting younger researchers, and ensuring access to treatments we can move forward with renewed optimism and determination to make a difference in the lives of those affected by hemophilia. To learn more about today's topic, take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. And if you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to have future episodes delivered directly to you the moment they go live. You'll also find the Global Hemophilia Report on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to the contributors to this episode, doctors Michelle Whitkop, Len Valentino, Jordan Shavit, Keith Hoots, Flora Pevati, and Glenn Pierce. Thanks as well to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKellie, and to the Global Hemophilia Report's featured advertiser, Sanofi. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.